Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Well, welcome to another bonus episode of Stop the Killing. And if you are just tuning in for the first time, do note that these bonus episodes are different in format than our regular episodes that drop in season on a Thursday. Catherine and I like to pack in as much content as we can for you. But before we do that, it's time for a Patreon shout out. We wanted to give a big thank you to Jen, who's recently joined our Patreon community. Thank you so much for doing that, Jen. And if you're listening and you're thinking, oh, how can I become a Patreon supporter and support the podcast? Simple. You can either go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing or click the link in the show notes. So this episode's a little bit different. We've got a interview that was done by Catherine on the fly. So the sound quality you will hear in the background is obviously in a crowded conference room. But there's some really interesting data that is shared by the guest that she's talking to. And I won't tell you anything more than that. I'll leave Catherine to introduce you. Hi, I'm here with... Hi, Dr. Ashley from the Medical University of South Carolina. So I am part of a research team of trauma surgeons. They were interested in better understanding our patient population that we care for across the country in our trauma centers in terms of risk factors and circumstances for their injury, because we have great data on fatal firearm injury in the United States, but we don't have large data sets for mostly non-fatal firearm injury to better understand what we can do to prevent those. You know what, for our audience, where are we? What are we doing here today? So we are at the first, (laughs) which is really fantastic and overdue, firearm injury research conference. And we're here in DC and really what we're doing is you have some of the leaders and experts in the field of firearm injury prevention and intervention coming together to, you know, certainly share their research, share ideas. So we collected data over a year's time from 2021 to 2022, and we collected expanded data elements regarding known risk factors for firearm injury, like mental illness, prior assaults, prior suicide attempts, living in disadvantaged areas, and many, many more, in addition to the circumstances, where the injury happened, who was potentially the perpetrator, how was the firearm stored, and a whole host of those things. And so what we found was this, not surprisingly, about 70% of our patients that we collected data on were victims of assault. 
12% were unintentional and 4% were suicide. And that's pretty low, but that's not surprising because we know firearms that are used in suicides are very fatal. So most never make it to us. And here's what we found is that our rural patients were older they were more likely to be white. They were more likely to have a history of a mental illness, military experience, prior self-harm, experiencing adverse child experiences, own firearms, and lived in a relatively high disadvantaged community. Urban patients were more likely to be black, unemployed, have a history of an assault, other types of traumatic experiences. Children were more likely to have a single parent, and they were very likely to live in communities with the highest disadvantage. What was interesting is we found no differences in a few of the risk factors, including prior incarcerations or arrests, but over 35% of our entire patient population had a history of incarceration or arrest. Wow. Okay. But here's really the catch. We found these differences between our rural and our urban populations, but then I wanted to control for intent. And a lot of those differences disappear, meaning that when you look at a rural victim of assault... In an urban victim of assault, the risk factors all of a sudden are no longer different. So the only differences we found were some of the racial differences still persisted, and we really saw a higher proportion of black individuals disproportionately affected, specifically by assaults, notably in the urban areas. But when you look at some of these other differences that we initially found, like unemployment, for instance, you see here, it's high amongst all victims of assault, but it's not statistically different between urban and rural patients. And really, you go down the list, right, prior assaults, living in a single mother home, these things all of a sudden are no longer significant. And really what we're saying is a lot of the rural patients are very similar to the urban patients in terms of their risk factors. And the only ones that still remained statistically significant among the assaults, and for instance, were actually adverse child experiences and firearm access, which was actually higher in the rural population. So what fits into a category of adverse child experience? So ACEs are well known to be associated with a host of negative outcomes as adults. And so some of these include living in a home as a child where a parent is incarcerated, a parent is abusing drugs or alcohol, a history of neglect, exposure to intimate partner violence in the home. So there's a host of them that we know are associated with poor health outcomes. So one thing that surprises me here when I look at the data, I mean, I love that this is about firearms injury, not firearms deaths. It seems like there's a lot of more research and potentially number counting on firearms deaths. And as you said, not a lot on firearms arms injuries. One of the things that kind of surprises me most is the idea that there's generally not a significant difference between rural and urban patients. And that makes me think in terms of risk, you know, people always say, oh, living in the city is so dangerous and those people are much more likely to be injured by firearms. But your data doesn't really seem to support that. Well, what it shows, though, is that we do know that assaults and suicides and unintentional differences, uh, injuries do have differences between the urban and rural continuum. And so the incidence, yes, is higher in urban areas, but guess what? That's where most people live. (laughs) But when you look at the actual people that experience these injuries, they themselves and a lot of their risk factors are not that different. And so I think it kind of pushes back on the narrative that, oh, well, people that are assaulted in like these rural areas, like there's got to be something else going on. They're not like people 
in urban areas. But what we're really seeing here is, guess what? Like, yeah, a lot of these people have high levels of risk factors across the board, depending on the type of intent, right? So for instance, people that experienced a suicide attempt here, they had very high rates of mental illness, over 65%. But it's not different between our, our urban and our rural populations. And so I think what it helps lend to is when you're dealing with addressing the specific risk factors for firearm injury, should our interventions be that different across the urban and rural spectrum? And I think what it comes down to, right, is where most people live. And we have to be resource effective and concentrate our interventions where people live. And sometimes that's harder in rural areas. However, but there's things that we can do as a healthcare system. So whether it is talking about safe firearm ownership, handling, and storage with our patients, because over 90% of our victims of suicide attempt and almost 90% of our victims of unintentional injury had firearm access in their home or they owned it themselves. Wow, 90%, over 90%. Wow. Right, yeah. And so when we're seeing someone that's going through a life crisis, um, might uh, have a mental illness, has a history of traumatic events, which over 50% of our victims of suicide attempt had. We, as people that are interfacing in the healthcare system, have the ability to identify some of these risk factors and provide some mitigation. Another thing that a lot of trauma centers are, are trying to do is implement violence intervention programs, which really address some of the underlying risk factors and social determinants of health uh, that are at the root of the risk factors for assault especially. And some of this though, if you really look at where people are living, and so this is an indice of disparity. And what you see across the board is this, that 66% of all of these patients came from the highest distress communities. Interesting. And so when we think about inequity in communities, disinvestment, right, structural racism, you know, we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, what is going on in these communities and what needs to change upstream at the community level to help reduce the risk for all types of injury here. And notably for assault, because it is highest, we have almost 50% of all of our victims of assault that live in the most distressed communities, but it's high across the board. 66% of all of our patients came from areas that have the highest distressed communities index. So if you're working in a rural hospital, mm-hmm. which is probably the most challenging yeah. type of hospital situation, you are well served to understand it's not so much that they're from a rural community, it's that they might have one of these risk factors like prior self-harm, yeah. prior assault, mental illness, unemployment. So Poverty, even, right. Mm-hmm. And what I'm seeing here is more that the idea that maybe you live in a more rural community or you're hunters, it's is irrelevant when it comes to firearms storage. It's what's more important is in that home are those people filled with higher risks like these risks factors that you that you guys have researched. Well, I would say that we know that firearm access and ownership is an independent risk factor for experiencing suicide and unintentional injury specifically. We do know that. I mean, and you look at these over 90% of our patients that experience a suicide attempt and unintentional injury own them. But what we see though, is it's not different in the urban patient population, right? They own guns. They might not own them for hunting, They might own them for self-protection or for other reasons, but that alone 
is important to recognize and something that we have the ability to intervene on. But we know that all of these other risk factors through other studies do emerge as risk factors in addition to firearm ownership and access. So you've worked in emergency rooms? I'm a trauma surgeon, so, so that's trauma where surgeon, that's, some of my day is spent. <laughs> that's where it starts, right? It's part of what I'm hearing here that mm. doctors need to be more forward-leaning about asking about firearms access. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean, a lot of our professional societies recommend that and support that. So people shouldn't be offended if a doctor asks that because they're asking We're trying to solely. keep them safe. <laughs> and so a lot of our conversations revolve around safe storage, especially when there are number one children in the home. In addition, we talk to adults about, gosh, if you are depressed, if you're going through a life crisis, if you're having a hard time, let's talk about maybe relinquishing that gun, even for a temporary period of time, so that we can reduce your risk of hurting yourself with a very, very lethal means. And we talk to some of our patients that might be high risk of assault, especially some of our youth that have other risk factors, because a lot of them might feel the need to carry a gun for safety, because they say, you know, gosh, a lot of other people around me have a gun, and I'm worried, and there's a gang on on the end of my street often. And so then we have to talk about what can we do to reduce risk? And that's a big that's a big ask, but that's what some of our violence intervention programs are trying to do to help change the the potential risk factors and root causes in some of our young people's lives, especially helping them stay in school, helping them get jobs, maybe moving to a safer community, helping them leave a gang or group criminal activity that might be putting them at risk. And so there's a variety of ways that we in healthcare can play a role. And certainly patients can sometimes maybe be surprising to have a physician or a clinician talk about firearms and and, and violence prevention, but we're dealing with the leading cause of death for children in the United States and one of the leading causes of death for young adults and certainly a major cause of preventable injury. Our job is to help keep our patients safe and our communities safe, so this is part of what we need to be doing. Do you think that prevention is possible? I think a lot of people think there isn't a way to fix it. Oh, we know there are ways to fix it. We have the research and the data. We have a lot more to do, but we know of some policies and some practices right this minute that can be effective, some of which have been implemented, for instance, in different states and different cities. And you see the effect in those places while states like my own in South Carolina are not making those changes and our homicide rates, guess what, have doubled in a decade not just right in, in the 2020-2021 era. We know some things to implement, but we need the support and the political courage of our leaders to certainly adopt some of those policies, but also to invest in community violence intervention work, you know, more certainly in suicide intervention, but I think that we recognize the importance of that as well. So my takeaway is specifically from this study is that we focus, like you said, so much on fatal firearm injury, but most of the individuals that experience firearm injury in our country are victims of assault. And for every one that dies, another five or six survive. And we know that they have tremendous mental health burden, disability, maybe losses in employment, educational opportunity. There's a profound sequela after that. And so we have to better understand patients and individuals that, that experience non-fatal firearm injury so that we can actually intervene. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. If you've enjoyed Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community Podcast Productions, like this one. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I've been dating for the last six months is a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series... And that's when murder, Mm. all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, 
and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com <laughs>